0: When David asked me if I'd give this lecture he said, what I really want you to do is to talk about what excites you about research. And I'm aware that talking about genetics is usually the biggest turn off, particularly at this time of the afternoon. So although I'm afraid there is some genetics, it isn't quite all genetics. Um, and so what I'd like to do to start off with is just to tell you a little bit about how I got involved in, uh, in research in the first place. And I think that being a clinical academic is really sort of steps on a journey. And I guess my journey started, as David mentioned, back in Oxford. And I vividly remember the first medical attachment I did as a clinical student. It was on what was called the Nuffield Department of Medicine firm, and the head of that firm was Sir David Weatherall. who wasn't uh, knighted in those days, but it was David Weatherall, who's uh, on this slide here, as you can see. And David was r- a truly inspirational individual. He ran a molecular hematology lab, which was renowned throughout the world for its work on thalassemia. We had patients flying in from all over the world for treatment of thalassemia, and yet you could see him sit down and tell a patient that they'd got lung cancer with true humility. And he was clinically just one of the most sensible people I have ever met, I think. And so he really made a big impression on me as a role model of someone who could span the breadth from a patient-based interaction to running a basic science program, which was internationally recognised, and I think in a way that's what all clinical academics should aspire to do. Um, and I'm not suggesting for a moment that I've done that, but that's the sort of role which I think one should one should try and uh, try and achieve. I still keep some links with Oxford. Um, we managed to get together all of my year five year group um, for a reunion dinner um, last autumn and this is a a bunch of us looking somewhat older than we did as undergraduates in a restaurant on the on the high street Um, and i think it says something about the ties you make as a medical student that you can keep together so we had people flying in from um, the west coast of america Um, somebody else came in from a uh, from Oregon and Seattle actually for, for a very pleasant dinner and it was, it was very nice to get everybody together. And I think the other amazing thing is what happens to people along along that journey. So the people I recognize as being truly intelligent and truly clever have generally got off and done something completely different. And it's those of us who I think were sort of the plodding individuals who managed, to, who probably didn't have enough um, vision to see that there were other things that you could do who sort of carried on in the sort of clinical academic career. So, when I was, uh, uh, as David says, um, at Oxford, I was heavily involved with the sort of mountaineering club there, and I've always had a, a major interest in that. And this may seem completely irrelevant to what I'm going to talk to you about, but actually, I think we ought to start off here, which is a, a glacier in the middle of the Karakoram. It's in the Hunza Valley, just after they'd reopened it to visitors from, uh, uh, f- from, uh, from outside of the country. And this is high up, the mountain in the background, you can see here is a mountain called Rakaposhi, which was first climbed back in the 1950s. It's uh, pretty high, just under 8,000 meters. And these beasts here are are, are animals which are crosses between yaks and cattle, zoes, I think they're called. And the thing about these sorts of beasts is they're quite happy if you live at about 4,000 or 3,000 meters, but if you take them down to sea level, they get really quite sick and don't like it very much at all. And of course, humans are the exact opposite. We're pretty happy down at sea level, but if you go up high, you start getting very breathless. And some of us develop um, uh, nasty conditions. And this is one of them, which is high altitude pulmonary edema. So, this is an individual who's got a low pressure pulmonary edema due to exposure to high altitude. And if you take these individuals down to low altitude or give them lots of oxygen, they get better. But the bizarre thing about this, and the thing that really strikes me about this condition, is that not everybody gets it. So some of us are highly susceptible to developing the complications of altitude exposure, and the rest of us aren't, and in fact can travel quite happily at altitude without developing this potentially life-threatening condition. And this got me thinking, even as a student, and the sort of question which underlies the whole theme through this lecture is what are the individual factors which predict our susceptibility Either to developing disease or in responding to the treatments that we use in the management of disease. So from Oxford, I went down to Cardiff for a while, ended up in, a, uh, in 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 Nottingham, and I I guess I did my first research degree at a pretty formative time. It was really a time of change. The Berlin Wall had just come down. I'd Went to Philadelphia, as David said, and this is the sort of thing you see if you go to America. You see large rubber ducks coming around the corner on the freeway. Um, And I think what struck me was that we were at a a time of change unlike any other, I think, in the the practice of medicine. And that is because genetics was suddenly coming to a fore, And over the next few years, we learned a huge amount about the human genome. Now, the Human Genome Project, as you all know, was finished early this millennium, and we now know the sequence of the human genome, at least for a number of individuals. And more importantly, we know about the variability that's present within the human genome, which is the basis for the inter-individual variability between us all. And in order to understand some of the things I'm going to tell you, I'm going to have to just teach those of you who don't know just one or two things about the human genome. And the most important thing you need to go away is to know what a SNP is. So a SNP is something called a single nucleotide polymorphism. Um, and I've given an example of one on this slide here. So as you'll know, the DNA building, uh, the building blocks of DNA are made up of nucleotides. Um, and what I've shown on this slide here, I'm going to come out to point it out so I can see it. Um, is that you may have one individual who's got a bit of DNA which reads C-C-G-A-T-G, but in another individual, the same bit of DNA might read C-C-C-A-T-G. So you can see there's been a base change at this position between these two individuals. So this person's got a C for this G, and that's a single nucleotide polymorphism. And those single nucleotide polymorphisms are the commonest form of variability in the human genome, and they explain the variability between all of us, whether you've got blue eyes or brown eyes, whether or not you develop cystic fibrosis or you don't develop it. And we knowing increasing amounts about this variability in the human genome. And if you go to the databases and search them, you'll find there are at least something like 6 million of these SNPs or single nucleotide polymorphisms which vary between individuals in different populations. So I've got a few lessons as we go along. And the first lesson I want to teach you is that genetics, which is hailed as being the modern way forward and being extremely uh, novel, is actually very old. So this is a, a quiz I give to the medical students and there isn't a prize, but if anybody can tell me what the connection between this little collection of um, slides here, here we have some uh, a plant with some pods on it, here we have a blood film, and here we have an old Greek guy. Anybody any idea what the connection is? The students always get it, so. They are broad beans, you're quite right. And favism, right. So you're quite right, so this is um, a slide which which shows you some of the main features um, about favism, so favism is a severe hemolytic anemia that you see in people who are deficient in the enzyme G6PD. And the reason it's relevant to what I'm going to talk about is that it's precipitated by a range of stimuli, one of them is eating broad beans, but indeed a number of drugs, including some commonly used drugs, can precipitate um, these crises in people who um, are susceptible. So Pythagoras, who was the chap I showed you on the previous slide, was a member of a sect called the Favists. And the Favists were famous because, well not only because of the fact they abstained from beans, but one of the reasons was that they abstained from beans. And it's certainly been hypothesized that Pythagoras may actually have suffered from this condition himself. And the idea being that every time they ate beans they became unwell. Now, of course, we know far more about it now, so we know the genetics underlying this condition. We know that the G6PD gene sits on the X chromosome, and we know there are a number of mutations, I've listed a couple on that slide, which actually predispose you to this condition. And in fact, if you live in a Mediterranean country, then you'll get screened shortly after birth by a a screening fluorescent test, which tells you whether or not you carry um, this, uh, this, um, this gene abnormality. An interesting question which genetics often throws light on is why these things arose in the first place and as I guess most of you will know those individuals who are G6P deficient have got partial resistance to malaria and interestingly you can track the progress of malaria and the development of the condition across the Mediterranean and this is sort of a a medical historical map which I dug out. These are some remains taken from um, a, a burial site um, which interestingly included children as well as um, as adults just north of Rome. Um, and you can get DNA out of bones, of course, so you can look at the profile of individuals in terms of whether they carry these sorts of mutations. Um, and if you sort of map the sort of carriage of um, Mutations uh, around the Mediterranean and try and map onto that the progress in malaria, which, as you can see, arose in northern Africa and then spread up through the Italian peninsula around about the time of uh, 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 the birth of Christ. Then what you can see is a gradual progression of um, uh, of malaria at the same time that this gene became commoner in the in the population so it 's been hypothesized that that 's the reason that some people carry this potentially deleterious mutation because they 're partially resistant to malaria. So this is pharmacogenetics for you. This is a genetic basis for a common side effect to drugs, at least in Mediterranean countries, and it isn't new at all. So that's fine, but does it actually matter in treating patients? And what I'm going to tell you about now are are, are two relatively commonly used drugs where we already know a fair amount about how your response to treatment is uh, is determined by genetic factors, and the first of these, I'm going to illustrate with a, a with a case. Somebody I saw in the clinic. So this is a lady who was referred to me allegedly because of worsening of her asthma. She was 55, but actually, when you chatted to her in the kit in the clinic, she gave a clear story of worsening of, of breathlessness so and had a dry cough, and when you listen to her chest, she got some crackles. She had some lung function which showed restrictive uh, uh, defect with uh, reduced gas transfer. Went on to have a CT scan, and she's got good-going idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, or IPS. So, as was the um, uh, mode then before we realized steroids didn't work, we gave a high-dose steroids and azathioprine. But shortly after starting these, she started to drop a platelet count and a white cell count, and we repeated them, and in fact, she developed quite profound neutropenia which is a known side effect of azathioprine, so we stop the drug. But the question is, why do some people get this bone marrow suppression if they take azathioprine? And the answer, again, has got a, a very clear genetic basis. So there are a number of individuals, some of the colors don't show too well on here, I hope you can see them, who are deficient in this enzyme called thiopurimethyltransferase, or TPMT, which are responsible outside the cell for converting azathioprine to an active metabolite, 6-mecaptopurin, and within the cell for a uh, a methyl transferase, which is important in um, the metabolism to inactive metabolites. And if you're deficient in this enzyme, the active forms of the drug hang around for longer, and so you're at much greater risk of bone marrow suppression. Again, we know the genetic basis of this pretty well now. About 1 in 300 in the UK population are deficient in this enzyme, TPMT. There are uh, three common polymorphisms. I've given them on that slide there for those of you who are interested. And you can test for this either using a genetic test or you can measure the enzyme activity if you want to. And individuals who have either the genetic risk factors or who have a very low level of enzyme activity when you measure it are at major risk of severe neutropenia. Uh, but not some of the other side effects, interestingly. And it, it's not an absolute blood test. So you, I've seen one patient who had um, se- a severe bone marrow suppression following azathioprine who, when we looked at her TPM status, actually had a normal TPMT uh, uh, phenotype and genotype. So it's not absolute, but it's a pretty good predictor. And what you probably argue is that what we should have done with this patient to avoid this potentially costly. Um, uh, uh, side effect of the drug would have been to treat her before we actually gave her the drugs. And I recently was asked to contribute to um, an MHRA uh, forum which has been looking at pharmacogenetics with a view to giving national guidance on how we should adopt these tests. And so this was literally a couple of weeks ago. And as part of the work I did for this, I looked at all the Specialist Society guidance which exists on whether or not you should look at patients in terms of uh, their TPMT status before you treat them. So we use azathioprine in a wide range of conditions. I can see gastroenterologists, I can see respiratory physicians, I can see rheumatologists uh, in the the clinic. So if you go to your specialist um, society recommendations, what do we find? So as I said, azathioprine is used in a wide range of inflammatory diseases. The product labeling um, in the States was uh, amended in 2004 To say that um uh, uh, it was recommended that you should uh, test for status before treating it now the dermatologists are actually a pretty advanced bunch of people so what they say is everybody should be should have their tpmt status determined before you give them azathioprine and that's british association of dermatology guidelines as taken off the web now unfortunately i'm ashamed to say that those of us in the bts are luddites because what we actually say is there's no requirement for testing um, interstitial, they don't even mention it actually if you go to the guidelines and the British Society of Gastroenterology as ever with gastroenterologists are lagging even behind respiratory physicians because they go completely the other way and say status determination cannot yet be recommended as a prerequisite to therapy so we've got a mess basically, we've got completely opposing guidelines determined by august bodies of very intelligent people coming to different conclusions about the utility Of introducing such testing so I'm not telling you what the answer is although you can probably guess what my views are but having said that there clearly is some work to do in terms of taking these approaches forward into clinical practice another example warfarin so warfarin's attracted a lot of attention recently and the reason for that of course is that we all see patients who have significant side effects from warfarin and those of us working on acute medical wards will regularly see people who've had sometimes life-threatening um, um, or indeed uh, 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 bleeds which cause, which cause death. So you need to know a little bit about how warfarin um, is handled by the body in terms of the clinical pharmacology. So th- the first thing is that the amount of warfarin that's present in the circulation is, is very dependent upon the activity of an enzyme, a cytokine P450 enzyme, and one particular form of that enzyme the 2C9 <coughs> form. So your cytochrome P450 2C9 uh, genotype is critically dependent in, uh, in terms of how fast you metabolize warfarin and there are a number of individuals a reasonable percentage of the population, 5-10% who are slow metabolizers of warfarin and hence will tend to have a greater anticoagulant effect of the drug. But also you need to think about how warfarin actually works which is of course to interfere with the um, uh, vitamin K uh, metabolism pathways and in fact the other major factor which, um, uh, which influences your response to warfarin is your genotype for genes in a gene called um, VKORC1 which is the main target of vitamin K um, and in fact you can predict something like 85% um, 80, uh, of the metabolism depending upon your CYP2C9 genotype and about 40% or so of the activity of this particular gene here be predicted by genetic, simple genetic information. So this has led to a number of studies looking to see whether or not, given that we already have clinical algorithms to try and help us with dosing with warfarin, whether or not you can introduce these sorts of practices into standard medical practice. And this is a big study published in the New England Journal earlier this year and what they did was they took 4,000 individuals um, and they split them into a, uh, a, an algorithm cohort and, and then a validation cohort and they looked to see whether or not you could model the INR based upon introducing genetic information into the dosing regimen. And they came up with a simple algorithm. And then they compared it in the um, validation cohort by randomizing people to an algorithm which included or didn't include genetic information. And what they found was that for those who were in the sort of normal therapeutic range, it wasn't actually particularly useful. But if you wanted to predict those who fell outside the normal range, um, either requiring low doses or um, higher than normal doses of warfarin to maintain a steady INR, which actually accounted for nearly half the total population, you were significantly better if you took genetic information into account in terms of dosing. And this seems to me to be a, a a way in which you could very readily introduce this sort of information to clinical practice. It doesn't cost a huge amount to genotype someone for these polymorphisms. And putting the information into a dosing algorithm would actually be very straightforward because we already have computerized algorithms to determine determine such dosing. And the Americans, being Americans, have taken this to heart. The FDA had a a, a meeting about it. I won't bother boring with all the details which are lifted off their website. But the, but the bottom line is that they have now put a recommendation in that uh, it should be, uh, the warfarin label in the States has been amended to recommend genetic testing before starting dosing. And in fact, there are four genetic tests which have been approved on the market now. And you can go to dosing algorithms. They're rather fun to look at, actually. I, I thoroughly recommend ch- looking around the web for stuff on uh, um, uh, uh, um, pharmacogenetics. So here's one here where you'll see a very august and very um, eminent-looking um, physician telling you about how people's lives were changed by this um, uh, by this approach the fact that he actually runs the clinic and charges a fair amount for doing the test is probably um, (laughs) probably also relevant i suspect the problem in the states is that medicare haven't been convinced enough to pick up the funding for this although as costs come down i think it's likely they may do And in fact, this slide is another one I prepared for the MHRA meeting, which we held recently. And this lists all of the drugs which are currently licensed in the USA, where the labeling information includes recommendations about genetic testing. And apart from the the couple I've already mentioned to you, I perhaps just highlight a couple of these. So the biggest use for this approach um, is in the oncology field. So I'm sure most of you will know that Herceptin is only effective in individuals who have got overexpression of the HER2 gene. And whilst this isn't host genotyping, it's tumour genotyping, then clearly this is part of routine clinical practice. Um, and there are other examples in the lung cancer field, for example, there are drugs um, like gefitinib and uh, erlotinib where um, EGFR status determines a treatment response. So it is coming in, ob- admittedly, in a relatively small number of disease areas. Um, And in fact, the MHRA have made recommendations um, slightly different in some cases to the FDA. Uh, One example is the commonly used drug carbamazepine, which we know if you use it in some people of Asian descent can induce a really nasty Stevens-Johnson-like syndrome. And that only occurs in people who have got a particular HLA um, uh, uh, genotype, which you can easily test for. And their recommendations, if you test positive, you shouldn't be given carbamazepine unless the benefits clearly outweigh the risks of SJS. So lesson three is that genetics can tell us things about disease mechanisms which result in the way that we change treatment management. I've just got one example I'd like to tell you about here, and that's neonatal diabetes. So diabetes has been at the forefront of genetic studies in complex disease, and there are a number of individuals who develop diabetes very soon after birth. Um, And these individuals, uh, uh, a reasonable number of them, have got a mutation in a gene called Cure 6.2, which I'll tell you about in a a minute. But the the reason you need to know about this is that historically, these patients were treated with insulin from birth. But actually, they're much better off treated with a sulfonylurea. And taking an infant at, say, six months and changing their management from lifelong insulin to a simple tablet is clearly a major um, potential benefit. And in fact, not only do they not have to take insulin, their di- this is glycosylated hemoglobin gets better. All the indices of diabetes control improve, and the reason is all explained by an ad- understanding of th- what actually happens. So, K6.2 is a gene which um, um, is coded for. Uh, sorry, the gene is called KCNJ11, and the protein is actually part of um, a potassium channel which sits on the on the pancreatic islet cell, and is, uh, is responsible. Um, for regulating insulin release. And if this channel doesn't close, basically um, you don't get uh, reduced insulin secretion. So what happens is the pancreatic islet cells get worn out. And because sulfonylureas work through a mechanism which is independent of the mechanism the mutation affects the channel, you can use sulfonylureas to bypass the pathway. Um, and the consequence is insulin dependent patients can be converted over onto tablets. So I work in respiratory disease, and I'm not going to go through all these in detail, but there are a number of examples where we already use genetic information, often without using it to alter the way we manage patients. Perhaps good example is alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency. If You see someone with early onset emphysema, you check their alpha-1 antitrypsin status. If they're abnormal, then your management plan for that patient is likely to involve Uh, earlier consideration for things like lung transplantation and in some countries you'll get replacement therapy etc. So I think there are examples even in in the respiratory area but the real question of course is whether or not we can take these specific examples I've given you and transfer them over into the management of the common diseases we see all the time. So as David mentioned earlier I run an asthma clinic and we have pretty good guidelines on how we manage asthma and if you actually then take a step back and ask yourself, of all the treatments that we have for asthma, how many of them are likely to be amenable to this sort of approach? This is sort of the summary which I came up with again for the MHRA meeting recently. blue oh, doesn't project very well, does it? But um, basically this is a class of drugs. This is um, whether or not you see risk of side effects. This is whether we know any genetic information about these um, uh, classes of drugs, and this is whether or not it's likely to be cost-effective to introduce uh, genetic uh, genetic information to treatment paradigms. And far and away the best candidate for this is the recently um, available uh, anti-IgE monoclonal antibodies, uh, humanized um, antibodies, which are used in a a small (coughs) number of patients, which as many of you will know, costs something like 20 to 30,000 pounds per year to use. and therefore, if we were able to but not only about two-thirds of patients respond to this. So if we were able to introduce a simple test which told us whether or not these individuals responded or didn't respond before starting treatment, it would be potentially very effective. I think we're gonna run a bit short of time, so I'm gonna just skip through these few slides here. And I'm going to move on now to uh, really the, the last thing that I want to talk about. So as some of you will know, is that there have been a major revolution in the way that we do genetics. And that revolution has come about partly because of the Human Genome Project. And really this is driven by technology. And it has now become possible to do very large scale genetics using um, uh, simple chip-based platforms which give you huge volumes of data. And the approach here is to use, is is to genotype people for the SNPs I mentioned right at the beginning across the whole of the genome in very large um, uh, numbers of individuals such that you end up with huge data sets. And what you can then do is look for association between those different polymorphisms and your disease or your phenotype of interest such as treatment response. And This approach is called genome-wide association and I put it to you that over the next five years genome-wide association studies are going to radically alter our understanding of disease pathogenesis and I've got a little bit of um, information about where we are in the respiratory area with this. The way that you do this is you get blood samples so you can extract DNA from large numbers of individuals and then you take the DNA out and you hybridize it with a chip and typically at the moment we've just completed a study and the sorts of levels of information we're getting to get decent coverage of the whole human genome are we running on a chip which has got 610,000 polymorphisms which you can hybridize So, against. So each individual you're generating that sort of level of information. And the problem with that of course is that the false positive rate's gonna be very high. And these are sort of sample size calculations for the sorts of studies I'm talking about. If you take um, uh, polymorphisms which are relatively common, so say more than 10% of the population, then if you want effect sizes which are um, typical for many diseases of 1.2 or 1.3, you need several thousand cases and controls to do these studies to get around the false positive rate. Um, And we've been involved in uh, uh, two big studies actually um, which are in the process of, uh, of reporting, which I'll just tell you briefly about. So um, the first of these is a study called ALGOSA, and, and, and what with colleagues um, I've done is we've coordinated a collection of severe asthmatic patients from across the UK. So we've got DNA from 1,000 people with severe asthma on GINA classification from across the DNA, and these sa- samples have just been genotyped um, at the National Genotyping Centre in Paris and we got the data back the other day my computer chugged away for a long time what's the file tried to open as you can imagine and what we're now going to do is to compare these data with controls from the 1958 birth cohort and other populations that we've got access to um, so we i don't have any data to show you from that but i just want to show you one or two data from a, a large consortium which martin tobin who's in leicester and myself have been running which we've called spirometer for obvious reasons it's a spirometry base and it's a meta-analysis and what we've done is we've collected populations who've had genome-wide platforms used to look at their um, genetic um, profiles. Um, and then we've looked at simple lung function um, uh, correlates within these data sets. And to get decent information, we've needed very large numbers. So our primary data set is 25,000 people who've had their genomes profiled on these chips. Um, and we've actually got a replication sample of 50,000. And The the problem with this is that um, you end up needing very large numbers uh, 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 of subjects obviously and you end up with potentially lots of false positives. And so I'll just show you data from two of these studies. This is um, Reykjavik in Iceland um, which you can just see in the background here is typical Icelandic day, it's snowing gently on the hills outside of this Vandesja which is just outside Reykjavik, it's a nice walk if you ever go there. Um, and we did a study looking at, um, uh, at asthma um, across a number of populations um, in Europe, which was actually coordinated by, um, um, by uh, decogenetics in, in Iceland. And this was published earlier this year in Nature Genetics. Um, and what we found were a number of genes, which um, I've highlighted in red here, which, which controlled eosinophil count in individuals uh, with asthma some of these are obvious candidates like il5 but others uh, 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 such as this transcription factor here perhaps less obvious so we start to identify genes which underlie your risk of eosinophilia etc this is spirometer and this is the problem with these sorts of studies nobody will publish them uh, because actually half the paper is taken up by the author list so this is the we just submitted the revised paper You'll see me somewhere down here as uh, Martin and I are the senior authors on this. But there are 96 authors on this paper. Um, um, the, the, the main message of this paper is that we found five new loci associated with lung function in the, in the general population. And I'm just going to tell you briefly about one of these. So how do you actually get around the false positive rate? Well, the first thing you do is do something called a QQ plot. And this is a QQ plot. What you do is, if you do um, any number of random tests, you can work out how many of them will give you a positive result. And of course, if you do 10 to the six random tests, then you're gonna get a fair number of those. But you can actually plot out the number of tests against um, the the number of uh, tests you'd expect to give you a false positive against the number you actually see in your data set. And if you don't get a straight line correlation, that suggests there is a genetic effect which is real within that population. So the deviation from this QQ line tells you what's going on. And this shows you quite clearly for a simple phenotype, lung function FEV1, that there is an excess of tests which are significant over and above what you would predict shown by this straight line. And that tells you that this variability here is, is, is due to genetic variation which you're picking up in the population. What you then do is you go and look at all of those polymorphisms, all the SNPs across the whole human genome, and you plot it out in what's called a Manhattan plot. Um, I don't know how well you can see that, but the, the different colors across the bottom here show the different chromosomes. Um, and basically, these are p-values up here, and this value here is about 10 to the minus 7 across about there. Okay. So everything that's shown in red above here is significant according to multiple testing correlations. And what you see is a bit of sort of things which crop up just above these, may be real or may not be, but you can see some really quite impressive peaks where there's a whole bunch of polymorphisms which are coming up as being positive. And if you look at one of those chromosome 4 peaks, it actually maps to a region containing a gene called Hedgehog Interacting Protein, or HHIP. Here are all the polymorphisms in a sort of map which is much closer drawn across this region Um, and so we've got very good evidence that this gene here dictates lung function within the general population and now obviously we're going on to see if it's a risk factor for COPD that can tell you and then really the really interesting thing is what does that gene tell you about function if you understand the molecular genetics can you start to get a a handle on pathogenesis can you use it to alter treatment Um, and this is just a forest plot which shows the results in all the, st- all the different studies which we looked at in this. And you can see there's a whole bunch, including some British ones such as OUSPAC, 58 birth cohort, um, there's the U- twins UKs in here, a whole bunch of them. So I think that to summarize where we are with genome-wide association, we will identify a lot of genes which are, are important in the development of specific traits and I think that will teach us new things about disease. I think that's already evident. And of course, technology is advancing very quickly. The, real, the, 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 the ch- challenge out there in the molecular genetics world is the $1,000 genome, and we're not far off it. So the $1,000 genome says that you can walk into a company's um, offices and give them $1,000 and they would sequence the whole of your genome and you'd have the results back the following day. And we're probably three to five years away from that. So huge levels of information potentially available in the in, in the near future. So, last couple of slides of data before I finish off with a few sort of um, philosophical points. Will these genome-wide approaches work in pharmacogenetics? Um, and the answer is potentially yes, they will. And this is a paper, there's a Nottingham author on this paper, Gaurav um, was a member of the consortium who did this work. And this shows you don't actually need huge sample sizes if you have a big effect size. and This is a study looking at drug-induced liver injury um, following antibiotic use. Um, and in fact, these patients all had um, drug-induced liver injury following uh, flu And this is another Manhattan plot, showing the same sort of thing as I showed you before. And what you can immediately see is there's a massive peak here, isn't there? So there's quite clearly a single gene locus which is dictating your risk of developing this condition. Um, and it turns out that um, this particular... Um, gene is uh, for a, a, a part of the HLA cluster. If you have this HLA B star 5701 genotype, you're at high risk of developing flu flu-coxy- induced liver injury. Now that tells you what the mechanism is straight away under, un, um, underlying this condition. What it doesn't tell you is whether or not it will be cost-effective to genotype people before you gave them flu every time they pitched up with cellulitis, which of course is a, is a different question. So there are a number of drivers which I think will bring the personalized medicine agenda into the common practice. The regulatory authorities are looking at this very seriously at the moment, as I've already mentioned. Pharma is interested because they've had so many high-profile failures of new drugs coming to market. Imagine if you could have rescued Vioxx using a simple genetic testing system. Biotech are out there making diagnostic tests which they're selling to people, the specialist bodies I've already talked about. Patient groups like this because they say, I knew my drug didn't work, can you, I've now got an explanation why it doesn't work. Academics are interested and the government drives it a bit as well. And just to give you a feel for sort of how bio, biotech are pressing this, if you've got a few spare minutes, Google 23andMe. So 23andMe is a company based in the state, you can also try DecodeMe me and other ones. And basically what their website says to you is, if you send them some money, they will send you a little um, pot which you spit into through the post. You then send it off to them, they hybridize it against a chip and they will produce a genetic report for you. And th- for some reason, the screen doesn't show blue very well, so I, I guess you probably can't read this very well. But this is what they do. They produce a clinical report for a whole range of conditions on here. So they will tell you whether or not you're more likely to get prostate cancer, hemochromatosis, whether or not you've got, um, uh, what what your ear waxes. is, They actually are looking for things like CF gene mutations, et cetera, on here, diabetes, et cetera. Um, And their rules are that in order to um, give you, to to, to end up with a clinical report, you must have an absolute lifetime risk of 5% or greater of having one of these conditions. um, And the effect size of the polymorphisms need to be, I think it's threefold over the, the general population. And whether we like it or not, people are buying into this sending off their samples, and they've just actually, um, Google have just um, uh, had an initiative where they're going to uh, contact 1,000 doctors in the UK to try and get wider acceptance of this as a principle. The idea being they'll they'll do this for you for free if you sign up for it, I think. Um, But the trouble is you start getting people coming along to you in clinics saying, well, look, I've got this particular mutation, what are you gonna do about it? So there is an issue for us in managing patients. So to summarize what I've said about genetics, I think it will define new treatment targets. I think it will tell us about disease subphenotypes and potentially allow us to predict severity. I think it will enable us, at least in limited examples, I don't know how generalizable it is yet, but in limited situations it will enable us to predict how best to treat patients. And perhaps most importantly to me is it alters our concepts of disease pathogenesis. It takes us away from something which is just this is a lung cancer because it's in the lung and it's malignant, to something which says, well, this is a form of cancer which is best treated by drug X, and I don't care if it's in the lung or in the kidney or where it is. So that's the, the, the hardcore genetics bit. There are a couple of slides just to finish off with. So what have I learned along this sort of pathway? So I've learnt four things, I think. The first and probably the most important is that the best research comes out of collaborative approaches. If you want to do decent research, what you've got to do is identify the other people who you can work with who are similarly driven and get the best people together to do the research. And Things like the Spirometer Consortium have been a huge pleasure to run because everybody is committed to getting interesting information regardless of what the result of it is at the end of it. The second thing is something David Weatherall always mentioned whenever he talked about this subject, and that is that serendipity plays a major role. So actually, incremental advances in science based upon moving from what you know to what you predict might happen takes you forward a little bit at a time, but the really interesting stuff has usually come completely out of left field. And the critical thing to be able to do is to identify when you see something which is completely unexpected, to follow it up decide if it's worth following up and the final message I would have for you is that I've enjoyed it it's good fun doing clinical research so this is the, re- the really sort of philosophical bit i I had to put a bit of tennis enough this is one of my favorite quotes and what I would say to you is that you can go and look at things from a standard angle and for those of you who've been there this is Lake Louise and just in front of the huge hotel or you can take the approach of wandering up the mountain to the side here um, which is called Fairview, and it's got a good name because that's the same mountains as you can see in the background, in this Lake Louise photograph taken from the top of the hill there. And I would argue to you that, you know, making that extra step and traveling up there is is worthwhile. And I'm gonna finish on a slide which has nothing to do with genetics, which is some research that we generated in the lab last week which I'm really interested about. So this is potentially the future of lung imaging, I believe. So as you walked in here, you'll have seen just across the corridor where the medical stores used to occupy a large space. I've knocked half of it down and put a 1.5 t MR scanner in there. And the reason we've done that is that we've built a hyperpolarized lung imaging unit to enable us to explore the use of inert gases to image um, patients with respiratory disease. And it's unique, there's not another facility like it in the country. Um, and this is the first images we've got off the scanner, and this is really quite boring because it's actually a glass vial. The glass vial is about 20 mils in size, and it contains xenon, which has been uh, um, bashed by a a high-intensity laser in order to um, hyperpolarize it. And that gives it a magnetic spin, and then you can image it in an MR. And, of course, the thing about xenon is it's readily available. You can inhale it. So what we plan to do is to to develop (laughs) the use of 129 xenon, hyperpolarize it in a hyperpolarizer, and then use it as an imaging agent. And this glass vial, as you can see, s- shows up very nicely in the magnet. F- in fact, you can even see the two little glass blebs on the end where the gas has leaked in. And we can use this because xenon a good surrogate for gas transfer to measure ventilation, perfusion, etc., in a non-radiation-dependent manner. And you know, I don't know if it is the future of lung imaging, but I'm really excited about this because it potentially gives us a a new modality for studying patients with lung disease to enable us to do physiologically relevant imaging. So I'm going to stop there. I just need to say thank you very much to the MRC and the Asthma UK who've supported research we've been doing, and actually I should mention EPSRC who have been a major funder of the the Xenon Lung Imaging Project as well. And everybody in the department, because of course the truth of the matter is I go around giving these sorts of talks and they do the work. I just get here to stand here and talk about it. So I will stop there and I hope you've found that interesting and I'm very happy to answer any questions you may have.